It's okay to link things that don't make sense. And if you find the links between them and they make sense to you, even if you're like, what, is that even useful? Yes, probably. It's been able to not judge yourself by thinking weirdly. I think that's probably one of the things because when I was little, I made these notes. They made sense to me. They made no sense to everyone else. But when you get older or when you, as time goes, you're like, oh, that makes sense to me. And so it's staying, it's, I mean, cheesy, but it's staying true to yourself and to what you, what your vision is. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Our guest today is a postdoctoral scientist specializing in translational bioinformatics. She's earned a bachelor's in biochemistry from the University of Bristol and a PhD in structural, chemical, and computational biology from the University College of London. At the age of eight, she was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and struggled to understand the world around her and the way people work. Desperate for a solution, she asked her mother if there's an instructional manual for humans that she can consult. And upon learning there's no such blueprint to life, she began to create her own. This blueprint culminated in a book where she dismantles our obscure social customs and identifies what it really means to be a human using her unique expertise in a language she knows best, science. Her book is an original and incisive exploration of human nature and the strangeness of our social norms written from the outside looking in. Her unique perspective of the world teaches us so much about ourselves, about who we are and why we do the things we do, and is a fascinating guide on how to lead a more connected, happier life. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, author of Explaining Humans, What Science Can Teach Us About Life, Dr. Camilla Pang. Dr. Pang, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really, really appreciate having you here. Yeah, thank you for having me on here. I'm excited to discuss because I really enjoyed this podcast. So, um, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So I'd love to hear more about your journey. So if you could just talk to us about your journey, how did you develop and cultivate this interest in science? You know, what were some of the struggles you had to overcome on your path to getting where you are today? And how did you deal with them? How did you overcome them? So basically, oh, there's too many questions in one question. So ironically, that is open-ended questions for, I find really hard. And I have this at the start of every podcast. And it's, you know, I'm not going to hide it. I think we should include this in. <laughs> because when I try and process something, 
something, um, I find it really hard to pick the details which I need to say. And it's always been like that. Like when I was little, you have no filter when you have autism. And that means basically taking everything literally and you don't know where to start. You're kind of marooned in the middle of this probabilistic landscape and you just don't really know what to do. And so, and then when you try and communicate with people, you somehow don't know how. It's very weird. And for me, I've tried to make sense of human behavior and how to connect, even from such a young age as four. And I needed something tangible and concrete to hold on to. And I read books and the things that I kind of, you know, clasped onto uh, were science and, and maths. Because when I read it, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And when nothing else makes sense, you're like, well, this is the substrate that I'm going to form my life around. And that came to me writing, kind of just even highlighting science books with pens, copying bits out. And then when the science books in question couldn't describe everything, I used to stitch notes together. And that formed the basis of the book, Explaining Humans. So that's pretty interesting because I really enjoyed going through your book and you've got some awesome notes and drawings in there as well. So I can't wait to dig deeper and, and talk about that. But before we get into that, I was wondering if maybe we can pick your brain a little bit on what you think the next big thing in machine learning is going to be you know, in the next two to five years. Two to five years. All right, that's quite interesting. I think, I mean, <laughs> to put a time frame on it, um, to be honest, I feel like the attitudes we have generally in machine learning is to replicate the, you know, the kind of logic within the human brain. And that's going to get more accurate. We're going to have more data. And I think there's going to be a point where we realize that this element of precision that we're all aspiring to have, even as humans, um, is not going to be as effective as we think it's going to be. So for example, there needs to be more nuance and there's going to be questioning what we know because everything about AI is based on what we know and what we want to kind of predict, whereas the human mind is a lot that we don't know and that still catches us off guard. And that's the same for everything else in life. You know, you've got complex adaptive systems. And so the thing that I'd like to be reading about or be looking at is more things like kind of the agent-based model and modeling these complex adaptive systems, not assuming that one rule fits all or one logic fits all. So I could talk about it for quite a while, but I think we're definitely going to appreciate the limitations of very rigid algorithms and try and incorporate more flexibility in absorbing and making the most of chaos as opposed to try and kind of spread it to a side. So that's what I'm hoping. I don't know, that's quite a vague answer, but... That's definitely very... Very interesting. So, you know, with this kind of vision you have for what it's going to look like in the next two to five years, what do you think would be the biggest positive impact on society? Oh, it's like many things. It depends how it's used, isn't it? So you could make this amazing tool, but then it's like me saying, oh yeah, I'm going to make a clone of a superhuman, which quite frankly is what we're kind of trying to do with AI. But then what does that superhuman do? So I'd like to feel, I'd like to think that AI is used in a way in which can make more sustainable solutions and not kind of accelerate this whole capitalism that we're seeing. It's more for the greater good, basically. You know, I could say I'd like to see it applied to things like climate change. I'd like for it to be able to predict things that are more to do with mental health. Um, that, that's, those are my subjective causes, but I'm sure there are many other things. But before we get on to making the most out of AI, we first need to make the most out of human minds. Very, very interesting point. And I 100% agree with that. Yeah. So just kind of continuing on this wave here, trying to pick your brain about the future. What do you think would be scariest applications of machine learning in the next two to five years? 
I feel like of a similar point, the things that scare me most about this emerging technology is, you know, humans have started to see it as the kind of almighty consciousness, you know. They try and believe AI more than they do with a, you know, a human. So I feel like it's how we interpret it and knowing its limitations. The thing that scares me a little bit is people assuming that because it's not human, therefore it is the, you know, the right answer to everything, you know, at the number 42 in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So basically, the thing that I'm scared of is people trusting AI more than they do humans. So I was wondering in the vision of the future that you have, what do you think will separate the great data scientists from the merely good ones? Well, the thing is, we have lots of different shapes of data scientists. And I've actually noticed that there's actually not one type of data scientist that is correct. And it's acknowledging this and making the most of the soft skills that you have. I mean, I could say that, oh, no, you need to code and do an all-nighter every night, but then what will you achieve? You'll achieve, you might, you know, there's many different things that make a data scientist other than coding. And this is something only I've recently learned because I've only been in bioinformatics for, I don't know, I'd say two or three years, or probably more than that, maybe five now. So I'm still quite new to it. And I did a personality um, test at work and I was actually quite scared to show my boss the results because it was not data scientist shaped. It wasn't as technical or logical or organizational as one would, you know, stereotype. And then he was like, yeah, that's fine because we need different types of data scientists. So, I, so it was really nice to hear that you don't... So mine was more emotional and conceptual. And I feel like acknowledging the different shapes and to improve AI, we need to appreciate the nuances in people um, for a start. And not everyone is to be a tunnel vision and doing one skill. So it's being adaptable and knowing what you can offer. Absolutely love that response. I think that's 100% true. The ability to just have different shapes of data science. Uh, but sorry, yeah, go, go on with your uh, example. Oh, no, I was just saying about, so my strengths, I'm learning how to code. Like I'm not a Python wizard. Like I try and learn it so that I can try and apply it to do the problems that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm faced with in work and just for general, you know, funsies. But what I'm really good at, and I think this requires an element of confidence, um, is being able to envision and look at how algorithms um, are simulated in real life, but also in practice. I was wondering if you could talk to us about the terms neurotypical and neurodiverse. Would you mind defining these terms for our audience? Yes, of course. Um, I've had this question a couple of times, and I think every time I say it, the answer is only that slightly bit different. And I think it's because it's an evolving term. So I guess there's two definitions of it. If someone is neurodiverse or neurodivergent, you, I mean, everyone's neurodivergent. I mean, it's like we're genetically divergent because we're not all exactly the same. But when it comes to neurodiversity and having an attributed, I guess, a diagnosis. So you, you are so different enough to not be able to function in the normal, I guess, everyday life. It, it hinders everyday life, basically. For me, I have a form of autism or I have autistic spectrum disorder. I also have ADHD. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. I know that that sounds like a load of acronyms, but what I really want to highlight is that everyone is neurodiverse, but to the point in which it hinders everyday life, you will have different parameters of your brain, which are altered to such an extent that you can't even focus on tiny little things. Or when you say something, it's outside, it's outside what is expected of you. And I think to be able to be neurodivergent and own it and know your own shape is very brave because a lot of the time when you are neurodiverse, diagnosis or not, because it's actually very hard to get a diagnosis, especially in adulthood, um, you will feel squished and you can't be yourself. So 
that is also something that I would attribute to someone who is neurodivergent is when they're like, I don't understand my shape. Or even if I did, I know no one else would. Yeah, definitely. Very interesting. And thank you for defining that for us. That's I tried. Uh, I'm, yeah. surely, I'm sure someone will be like, oh, no, it's something else. But this is the thing. It's, it's divergent. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, right? Like some of these terms, like it's how you internalize them and how you've come to understand them. Um, I mean, there's always more than one right answer, I think. So I'd like to get deeper into your book. So I think it's fascinating in your book, how you draw parallels between machine learning and human cognition, especially in terms of decision-making. You talk about two things uh, that I thought were pretty fascinating uh, amongst many other things. And they were thinking in boxes and thinking in trees. Can you talk to us about what that means? What does it mean to think in boxes and what does it mean to think in trees? So basically, simply put, I try to attribute these different types of, I guess I call them data structures, um, or like these categories versus an evolving branched um, stream of thoughts as two opposite ends of the spectrum. And we all have them, we all do both. But to be box thinking, pure box thinking is there's no room for error. You're like ticking to the time intervals. You're like, I got 22 minutes to do this. And it's great because it means that you can be very efficient and you are the fidelity of thought of you doing X, Y, Z is, you know, it's very definite. And it's very good for acting things there and then. But sometimes what happens is um, I used to be like this through and through because that was how I implemented structure in my life. I didn't know what else to do. I I felt that, that there was only one way and I was like, okay, does that mean I just do this because I understand it? And most of the time it's knowing what you like and liking what you know. And with bots thinking, it's categorical in that regard. And that is there's only a few alternatives and you can't really see the solutions in between. You get quite stuck. Whereas to think in trees, as I call it, um, it's more of a branched, I guess, probabilistic landscape. And I talk about this more in, in, in later chapters in the, in the book, but primarily it's about being able to acknowledge the different branches of fates that can arise from a moment in time and be able to reassure yourself that there are, you, you don't have to put all your eggs in, in one branch. You can separate them out and be like, well, I could do this, we could do this. And if this doesn't happen, then let's do this. So it's kind of a reassurance based on, I guess, experience that always helps because you know the eventualities but sometimes you can get stuck in a rut and think so much in trees that you don't end up doing anything because every movement that you make could be a wrong move so this is why boxing can also comes in handy because it helps you to coalesce your streams of thought into action and i think this is one thing that we're missing in lockdown is these boxes that we're used to having i certainly am anyway so it sounds like there's not really one mode of thinking that's better than the other. It doesn't really depend on what it is you're trying to solve, problemize, what it is that you're thinking about. Yes, a bit of both. And this is, ironically, this is by acknowledging that we can do both is tree thinking in itself, because <laughs> it does depend. I've, I've tried to simulate the extremes of both. This quarantine, I've not done box thinking at all because I, I actually find it hard without my normal environment. And so I've actually been less productive because I'm like, well, I could do this, I could do this. And then you're stuck in the middle and then you're looking at your knee for two hours. That's not what you want. You want to be able to make a decision there and then. And this is where you need to notice what you're doing and then how can you go to the other one to get things done. So it does depend on who you're dealing with. For example, if you're trying to think of flexible solutions and it's good to know what you know, but to kind of connect the boxes and to feel like you're not on a cliff edge of a decision, thinking in this branch-like manner can offer a lot of reassurance and also alternative solutions that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of if you just stepped back a little bit. And you mentioned that people tend to be stuck in, in a box thinking type of 
mode. Why do you think that is? That most people are, are stuck in a box thinking type of mode. It's a creation that they built for them to survive and for them to function. It's almost like an algorithmic module. You're like, okay, this is the module, this is the function, but also emotionally what that means for a human. If you learn something and you're like, well, it works so far, then why would it be wrong? You start to question other alternatives and try and squeeze them into the all vision of what the world should be. I mean, that it goes one or two ways, really, but it, it can be quite limiting and you can get very bored easily. So it's good that you get bored easily because it means that naturally you are quite a tree thinker. You know that there's always more to do, but it's based on fear ultimately because obviously you've invested in this box-like vision or boxes like vision like pixels and you're like, well, how else do I see the world? And for those of us who are able to think in trees, what can we do to get beyond the first branch of that tree? For me... Much like, um, we're going to refer to um, data science now because, you know, this is a term that I recently learned called like jittering. So basically when you do a visualization, you've got many points for, you know, for one point basically, and you, you want to see them all. And so you kind of do this random scattering about a point so that you can kind of acknowledge that they're in the same space. So what I try and do is do that for everything that I'm doing. If I haven't got a routine set up and I don't know where to start, then what I do is be like, okay, do I write? Okay, I could pick up a pen. I could do this. Maybe I could do this. What's really Related to this, and I think that randomization is something that I find really useful in defining what I actually need to do there and then. But that's because then it cushions me around what I'm trying to do and what I want to get from it. It's hard to know where to start, which is why I guess procrastination does help me in that regard because it helps centers me where I need to be. But obviously, make sure you put your phone away because <laughs> that's another rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. So you talk about learning to embrace errors and why it's super important to do that. So, what can we do? to start embracing errors in our own lives? I think it depends what people mean by error. So for example, error and uselessness are merely just a, you know, a byproduct of not attributing to a, you know, an orchestrated utility. It's not good for this, therefore it's an error. But actually reshaping how what we think of what error is um, can be quite useful because an error in one context is a solution in the next. It just depends on what your viewpoint is. And when it comes to being um, neurodivergent, you would have multiple different viewpoints in the space of a minute, which is why, A, you always see the alternative solution. But whether that's useful or not, that takes you zooming in on it. And that can take confidence. So with errors, you know, there's many different ways of doing doing one thing. But to acknowledge the errors are to acknowledge the spaces in between the, the tree-like thinking. What, what branches them together? And I think by acknowledging what we define as noise isn't completely useless, but could be used in another context. It's just being flexible with that. And I think back to your question earlier, to see the signal from the noise and to see the opportunities that can arise from it will take, is, a, is a very good feature of a data scientist to not have the tunnel vision. So, yeah. And I thought it was really interesting how you mentioned that like the knee-jerk response to errors, like a downfall of box thinking where mm. you know, you, you're kind of categorizing everything. So if it's like, oh, that's not right, just immediately just kind of give an automatic response to that. Did I understand that correctly from your book? Yeah, basically, yeah. It's just highlighting, yeah, that resourcefulness to be like, okay, it's not useful now in this context, but why would it be useful in the next? We don't want to diss it, but we want to acknowledge it's there and question why it's there. We'll get in on with this. Like, it's not being like, oh, no, that's wrong. It's like saying to a person, it's like people saying to me, oh, no, your, you know, your, your existence is wrong. Oh, cheers. No, it's not. It's just different to yours. So I feel like I don't want to extrapolate literally from a data point to a human, but it's the same attitude. It's very interesting. Hey!
Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. I thought it was really interesting how you were making connections between proteins and personality and interpersonal relationships. So what do proteins have to do with personality and interpersonal relationships? So basically, just to um, bring it back to the book as why I used proteins as a means to model humans, was um, when I was little, um, a lot of people used to attribute um, personalities and to learn from the personalities of the teddy bears and what that means for humans. And they made characters out of the things they knew that resonated with them and they connected with. I didn't really connect with those or, or people and I knew that I connected with science. And back to the chapter where I mentioned that, um, quote, proteins are like humans or humans are like proteins. It was a way of me being able to model this dynamic behavior that I saw on, on a football match, as one does. And I realized that this dynamic behavior could be modeled because I knew that a lot of people, they moved in cliques and then they moved independently, but then one, one person was different in one context to another. And I really loved this disparity between what it meant to function in one environment and then be able to adapt to another. So for example, it provides a good model of human behavior because it enables humans to be considered in different adaptive contexts as opposed to just having one function. That's why I liked it. So how can we use this understanding of proteins to be better colleagues and better teammates at work? Okay. Um, so for example, when I, um, so when I wrote the chapter, it was um, quite I wrote all this book before I was 20. So at the moment, I hadn't actually been in work. Um, but now um, thinking of it, what I did is try and attribute these different types of proteins and their personalities uh, or their types of function and their responsiveness in the cell and what they did. You've got your receptor proteins, your adaptive proteins, your kinases and your, um, your nuclear proteins. I'm, I'm sure there's many others. But what I liked most about this protein model was to do with the fact that you have different layers of structure. So you've got the sequence and you've got the primary structure as the sequence of amino acids and then you've got and it folds in on itself to create this module of evolution that is then interwound with other units of evolution to kind of help characterize the different modes of function and when it came to humans I thought well that's basically the same as us we're ultimately determined by our genetic sequence along with our environment amongst many other factors that make us human and make us behave differently in different contexts so for me I was like well I saw this and I was like this is great I was to try and make it a bit more accessible to people in the book I liked to kind of parallel these roles of proteins to a well-known psychological test called the Myers-Briggs um, classification um, just to make it a little bit more human because obviously when people see proteins they don't see personalities and so I try to parallel that but I think one of the limitations of the Myers-Briggs is that you limited to a 4D um, you know four letter metric and then that's it with a protein, you could be many different things in many different contexts. I mean, you could have a tertiary structure, which is basically like a blob of, you know, encoded by one genetic sequence that can then interact with another kind of protein um, tertiary structure or another blob to have a different function. So therefore, it depends a little bit more on what the cell needs. And so this is something that thankfully I'm in a job that I think that makes the most of the different sides of people. And for example, if I'm not data scientist shaped, that, that's okay. <laughs> so it's, it's not just getting to know people, but it's about about knowing the shape, the different sides of people and what they can offer in a team. And also it goes both ways is being
being able to open up and be like, actually, I'm good at this also and speaking up so that you can shine, basically. What tips do you have for, let's say, a data scientist in a team environment who might be scared of looking like they don't know something or maybe scared to admit that they don't know everything, but they don't want to openly communicate that to their teammates? Do you have any tips for them on how to overcome this type of a fear? That's a really good question. And this is something that I often sometimes ask myself as well. Some of my friends ask me and it's knowing your own shape and admitting that because you don't feel like you are on top of the the main skill that kind of pins you down to the job and be like, yes, I coded this and I'm going to deliver this. That doesn't mean that, I mean, it means you've done the job, but that's not all of it. So I feel like I'm hoping that in the next two to five years, there's going to be an increased awareness that um, there's going to be many different data science shapes. And from that, people are going to realize that they have more to offer and that they can be that shape. So when you are feeling like you have more to offer, but you don't want to open up, ask yourself, okay, brilliant. If I'm great at this, how is this going to be useful? If it's not useful, then where is it useful for? And then before you know it, you can kind of root down to how it is useful in work. It might even just be collaboration with other labs. Well, that doesn't involve coding. No, but it does involve being able to communicate between different sides of science and bringing it all together. And surely that's a a philosophy of data science anyway. It isn't just being at the computer. So there's many different sides of data scientists that cover the basic fundamentals of, of being human in my eyes, because you have to be a scientist and an artist. You would have a vision and see how things connect. And also to communicate with experimentalists and higher order structures for us to integrate the main question. So actually, this is something that I tell myself and I feel reassured because even though I probably want to spend more time coding and I try, um, I know that there are other sides to my personality that also make me a great data scientist, such as, you know, it's you know, what, what energizes you. If you. If you're really not the good fit for the job, then that's something you have to question. But ultimately, the more we get to know data science, the more we realize that we're all scientists at the end of the day, because it requires a science and an art. I love that response, especially about the science and art being blended together. Um, I like how you talked about the principles of gradient descent in order to identify and prioritize our goals. So for you know the non-data scientist listeners in our audience, would you mind just quickly describing what gradient descent is in layman's terms? In layman's terms, yeah, for me, it means trial and error. And the main bit of trial and error is knowing which bits are of the kind of landscape of solutions is better for the short term. So local kind of solutions or local optimums. And then you've got the kind of bigger picture, which is a little bit vague, but we kind of aspire to it. And we know that there's a better solution out there. We can't quite touch it yet, though. So we kind of keep exploring. And then we kind of come to a point where we're like, hang on a minute, we can't get much better than this. So there's a point of convergence. And so this is the global kind of solution for this scenario. And we could even argue that this is the case for lockdown. We're trying to find these global solutions on everyday local local actions and which ones are optimal for today might not be optimal for two months time. And so we're in this constant battle of local versus global solution. And to be able to navigate this landscape, you have to iterate and be like, okay, this work. And then you kind of be able to kind of be like, oh no, that wasn't good. I'm going to backtrack. And it's being able to execute trial and error in a way to find these this global solution. So I hope that's kind of clear enough. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Cause we definitely need to have like 
the way you interpret it, the way you understand it now, in order for us to kind of explore how we use this to solve or rather prioritize and identify goals. So I'd love this analogy you had. So given, you know, the definition of, of gradient descent you just provided us, how can we use that to, or how can we use that framework, that mental model in order to help us find our path to prioritize and identify our goals? I feel like people do this anyway. So this is something that I'm not proposing a new algorithm for humans to implement. I mean, people do this anyway. We're just trying to make machines implement them. So, but on a scale which isn't judged, because if we were to humanize the algorithm that is already on a computer, we'd call it an anxiety attack. Because quite frankly, what we're trying to do is simulate all these different solutions and for it to go up and down all these different, you know, highs and lows and to, to find the solution. So this is where um, I realized that I was doing a gradient descent whenever I have a meltdown because everyone's like, oh no, she's being silly. And then my, even though I'm like crying and my head, my head is very hot and I've got my hands on my ears, I'm doing a gradient descent, but accelerated to the point where I need to find a solution of convergence. Because there are times where you, your head is spinning and this can often help happen in a meltdown. And this is where I don't mind having meltdowns because I know it often enables me to reach a point of convergence in a trial and error just through, you know, dynamic simulation to be like, okay, I need to do this now. So it's basically something that everyone can use, but it's discriminated against on a kind of accelerated scale because it's basically, you either just doing it every day, trial and error, or you're doing it in the form of an anxiety attack. But people don't realize how powerful anxiety attacks are because whenever I have this, I call them storms in my head. I feel a lot clearer after because I'm like, okay, I know I know what's most important to me. Yeah, it's very interesting the way you laid it out in your book. I, you know, hoping people go and get the book after this because um, you make a lot of great analogies using you know math and statistics to pretty much the human mind. I, I think it's really fascinating. One of them I really liked was oh, the um, you talked about probability and empathy using Bayes' theorem, and I thought that was pretty well put. So I'll take it for granted that my audience knows the difference between Bayesian and frequentists, and they understand what Bayes' theorem is. So how can we use Bayes? theorem for empathy and managing the relationships that we have with ourselves. So um, basically, I originally used Bayes' theorem as a way of being able to not just take things at face value. Because when you, or literally that is, when you have autism, and especially in my form of autism especially, I take things literally literally as they are. And that, that is great. But also it means that not many things are in context. And so you're trying to make this context around them. You're like, okay, they're angry at me. I don't know why they're angry at me. Should I be angry or should I be happy? Why are they upset? Oh, no. I got them this. Oh, I need to do this. So Bayes' theorem, I used it as a way of being able to simulate or kind of contextualize the words, the actions, and the characters of people so that I know how to respond best and to make them happy. <laughs> so if you know, obviously, it takes a while to get to know someone. And what I also described in this chapter that used Bayes' theorem is that getting to know a person and situation is literally like cellular evolution. You're a stem cell at first when you are kind of could be anything and so therefore you don't nothing's really specialized but as you go you see this kind of outward hierarchical structure of cells that are a little bit more specialized each time and it's an absolute beautiful diagram that's actually one of my favorites actually it's a hematopoiesis the kind of differentiation of blood cells 
and the immune system cells. And from this, you can see the parent cell of which of each cell. So it's like, oh, if you keep back in track, you kind of come to the starting point. And what I tried to do from this is I saw Bayes' theorem in this. This wouldn't have happened if this cell didn't occur before. And so I use both cellular evolution and Bayes' theorem as a way of being able to simulate the events that happened beforehand and the data gathered, you know, of this person, for example, to know more about what makes them tick and more about what makes them happy or when they're upset, how can I make them feel better based on what's happened before? Yeah, it's definitely very interesting the way you laid it out in the book. So again, guys, if you're listening to this, you have to get this book. It's super cool. So what is a neural network and how can it teach us about ourselves or what can it teach us about ourselves? So, oh my God, that's such an open-ended question. And my mind is spinning because I'm like, well, people do neural networks all the time. They basically are a neural network, but massive and interlinked. And it's about this process of combining all these inputs and assembling them in all these different combinations so that you can kind of make a decision. And if it doesn't work, you're like, oh no, go back. So it's the ability to assemble the input information to come up with all these different combinations of which ones work best. And then from that, have a response loop. So a feedback loop that goes, whether it's good or bad over time. So there's lots of different rounds in which you can do this for a particular event or a situation. And humans do this all the time. It's it's our ability to take in and process information and then make it make a decision on how to act and from this act is in feedback into the original I guess data that you sense so for me that's that's what it is I think there are other ways which people describe it as a perceptron which means that it's not this is a smaller neural network but that's the basis foundation of being able to that you know it's the parallel between a human and a computer isn't it you sense you process you output then you feedback yeah, that's what I really enjoyed about the book was the fact that actually, you know, I think at a fundamental level, like machine learning, these decision systems, they are created to model kind of, in a way, human decision-making processes. And I just like the way that your book really makes it explicit and then provides some real-world examples from, you know, your own life and the way you think about things. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Thanks. So, um, you know, you're somebody who is a practitioner and you understand the subject of machine learning and data science. I'm wondering how you view data science and machine learning. Do you view it as a art or as a science? A bit of both, just to put it bluntly. I think people learn it as a science, but then they realize that things go wrong and then they're like, oh no, why is it going wrong? Because we assume that the machine has some more nuance than anticipated and then trying to get the code right is also like talking to a, a human that doesn't give you any feedback. You're trying to decipher why the code's going wrong. So when it comes to the everyday grind of data science, it literally is an art because it takes a lot of patience. Still trying to work on, but also to be able to curate what reality is on the computer so that you can model it. I mean, that takes an artist <laughs> that you have to see things in between the lines and then know how to model them on the lines effectively. Bit of both. And how does the creative process manifest itself in data science or in science in general, rather? I'm basically writing another book on this. So at the moment, my head is spinning, but that's cool because I'm going to try and distill it down to a very small sentence. Um, I'm actually reading about that now. But as scientists, we're not we know we're stereotypically we're not meant to be creative meant to be rational but actually what one of the i guess the mistaken stereotypes is that to be a scientist you need to be very creative you need to think between the lines you need to be able to envision and be resourceful in different contexts and make things and make theory turn into practice and from that theory that doesn't mean anything if it doesn't model anything in real life so both art and science are just an appreciation of the world and being able to feel like how can i model it in the most effective way possible 
and effective, I think that's where it mainly differs in science and art. Effective in science means objective, representative, logical. Art is everything else in between. It's the noise, it's the nuance, it's the everything that you probably wouldn't want to put down because you worry that it's subjective. But actually, this is where they're very much um, complementary, but also it's about the attention to detail. So what level of granularity are you going to pick up on to make up your picture? And from that... This is something that I worry about when I'm doing my own simulations. I worry they're not going to be good enough. I don't know what that means. All I know is that does my interpretation of a data scientist with this specific detailed profile, is this going to be what they envision? It might might be, it might not be. So there's no one solution to the problem. And I feel like that's one of the things that a lot of data scientists need to know, but also myself included, because we can have imposter syndrome, <laughs> but we know that everyone's got a different type of vision. Yeah, that's definitely very important to keep in mind that different data scientists approaching a particular particular problem statement will have their own unique way of making progress and solving that problem statement. But as long as they're able to justify every step they're doing along the way, I think that methodology, the methodological part of it is like the science. Everything else, like you mentioned, like the noise, the gray stuff in between, that's like the art in play. So all throughout the book and on your Instagram as well, uh, I see these posts. You've got your books and your notes on Instagram, and then you got all these drawings throughout your book uh, explaining humans. I really like that note-taking style. I think a lot of our audience would benefit from you kind of taking us through your process for taking and making notes. Um, would you mind sharing your, your note-taking process with us? Yes, of course. Whenever I make notes, I've noticed that having books that be like, okay, these are my notes for today, and they're not very structured. And to be structured, you need everything to be make sense in your head. I write to make sense. So you've got chaos, you've got all these different weird scribble marks, like you like a map or an atlas of the problem. It's me trying to boil down the different elements of dimensionality into something that is more coherent, such as a, you know, a paragraph. But much like data science, it takes a lot of wrangling and a lot of processing to make sense of what you envision in your head. So for me, I like to, I guess as a form of artwork, you see the links and the bonds between the words and each angle of the paper in my pile means something. It's a message, much like the terms in DNA, you have all these different encodings of which paper, what angle means what. And for me, obviously, if the wind blows, then okay, I've got to reassemble it. But it's a narrative that I'm very sensitive to. I like to physically see everything laid out in front of me. So for example, it's its own message. And even when I'm at work, Whenever I make to-do lists, you see them and they're really messy. <laughs> My boss is like, maybe we should type them up. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. But then it just doesn't feel the same. So I'm constantly trying to be neater. But then the information that I put out doesn't feel the same. So it's good to do a bit of both. And if it's messy, then if it makes sense to you, then that's fine. But yeah, it's basically like an artwork and it's very messy. <laughs> Yeah, I really, I'm a big fan of like, they're almost kind of like mind maps in a sense that's kind of reminded me most of, but it really does, like just looking at the drawings that you have throughout the book, it's inspiration for me on how I want to think about taking notes, but also just the way it distilled everything down to a picture. It's really cool. So I think there's a lot to be learned from that. So thanks for sharing. Thank you. So a lot of data scientists, whether they're in their actual jobs or whether they're trying to break into the field, projects are a part of what they do. And they might be feeling some type of hesitation or fear because they're wanting to make their project absolutely perfect before releasing it to the world, before releasing it to their boss or what have you. Do you have any tips for anyone who is stuck in this kind of, it must be perfect before I release it mindset? Yeah. So I'm a bit of a perfectionist and so I completely get it. It's good to question 
and, and humor yourself. What does perfect actually mean? And then you're like, oh, actually, what, what does it mean? Does it mean it has to be this color? And then you'd be like, nah, they can't be that specific. And then you start to kind of reason with yourself as to what your definition of perfect means. And for example, it might, you know, when you're working with, you know, experimentalists and working with different types of scientists, everyone's vision of perfect is, is very different. And so it's knowing a bit more about your team and what they want. And even though it might not feel the perfect solution for you, if it does the job, then that's fine. So it's, yeah, I definitely feel like it's something that a lot of people battle with. But I think communicating more of the expectations that are, that, you know, that are upon your role and what you need to do. If you know what the wiggle room is, then you can kind of work around that. But to make it of a quality that, you know, do your work justice, and that's a personal endeavor, isn't it? So it's not to get rid of perfectionism. It's just making sure that when you do it, you're doing it for yourself, but also for the needs of the team. Thank you for that. I think that's really valuable advice that our audience is going to benefit uh, hearing. So thank you so much for that. So let's talk about soft skills for a minute here. What are some soft skills that you think data scientists are missing that are really going to help them excel in their careers and in their interpersonal relationships? Okay, so whoever coined the term soft skills, they're wrong because soft skills are actually really hard work and because they're nuanced and they're context dependent and no matter how friendly you are, you're always going to end up annoying someone. I think that's just a given. And that's actually quite nice to know because you, you might end up catching someone on a bad day. But when it comes to soft skills, I feel like from my experience so far, for me, it's a bit different because me, it's mainly being able to ease anxiety in myself so I can communicate effectively with my team. And it's also being able to communicate and making your team feel that they can come to you and ask you questions. So that's one thing that I've learned is from the people that don't have as many soft skills, people don't want to come and ask them for help because they feel like they can't or they're on the they're on the box sink and they're, they're, they're cliff-edged by someone's judgment. But if you feel like, yeah, that's okay, if you're open with them and being able to not judge them based on them not knowing something, I think it's just having that friendly banter and to see them as a as a human, as a friend. And I like to do that with all my colleagues because I, I really, I think that's really beneficial because when you're on off day, you can kind of like talk to them and you can, I think that's the soft skill for me that's been most important is even though most of the time everyone's got their headphones in, which is great, but underneath it all, you have no idea how anxious they're feeling when they're coding. So I think that's a soft skill that you need to teach yourself is being able to reassure yourself that even though everyone looks like they know what they're doing, they might not. <laughs> they might be as stuck as you. So it's being open and people to so that you can help each other basically and not judge each other because there's this whole kind of stigma you have to be rational you can't be emotional you know emotions are weak they're, they're a soft skill we don't need them but that's just a form of toxic masculinity we need to be able to make the most of the different sides of people to work effectively What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free open mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. I 100% agree with you that soft skills are a bit of a misnomer because they are really like the hardest skills. And I think at least from my perspective, they are the hard skills because they can't be taught. 
these are skills no, that yeah. <laughs> you learn through experience like, you learn from experience yeah. yeah and just to put on that further in chapter 11 I talk about how to be polite or mainly about the kind of nuances of etiquette and how to model them so there is there is some ways that you can kind of benchmark whether you're doing it right or wrong but ultimately they can't be taught which was my one of the conclusions of the chapter but not not all of them yeah and to your point I think like vulnerability is definitely a very important soft skill I think once I started to yeah. embrace that in my professional life when I was just open about like yeah I don't fucking know what the answer to this thing is man I need time, <laughs> to, need time to look it up and research and once I became okay with not knowing everything things just became so much more easier yeah definitely which is where the protein model comes in because you're always evolving everyone's yeah. not just this one dimensional being we're, we're constantly evolving so i'm an infj personality type on that meyer-briggs scale what what protein would you say would best describe me Ooh, you've got i guess it's a nuclear protein isn't it so it's um one with an i guess on the all the nuclear membrane if you're talking about that it's someone so infj so what i've tried to do even though you're like what's the point in using the protein model if you can just map it to myers-briggs which is a very good question and when i ask myself many times like this podcast but for example um if you were to equate the two it'd be a, a nuclear protein because you, you get on you get on with it i mean you're receptive to it but then you're kind of doing your own thing quietly but then you care about other you know who you affect and how you make people feel this is what i because i'm an infj as well so snap but this is the thing it depends on the context and i don't really like to talk about it too much because it's i don't feel like it has much to offer and people are like oh what protein am i there's actually a quiz that i um saw about a couple i know like 10 years ago maybe about what protein am i and for some reason i got kinase which i thought was hilarious which <laughs> because the kinase would be a very extroverted dynamic kind of like party animal <laughs> and like you know <laughs> spoiler alert i'm not that so when it comes to infj such as to you uh, it would be a nuclear protein awesome thank you definitely look into that a little bit more never never saw myself as as being very nuclear yeah. I, but I, I liked i liked the way you spelled it out in the in the book with the the different mappings that was really interesting it depends what you con what context is in i mean you could you could be yeah. a kinase at when you feel really comfortable so this is why i this is why it, it changes yeah so i was wondering if you could speak to your experience being a woman in stem and if you have any advice or words of encouragement for the women in our audience who are breaking into stem or maybe they're currently in stem might be facing you know any manner of adversities do you have any words of encouragement or advice for them do not try and hide your femininity because you feel like it'll make you more logical. It doesn't work. I feel a lot of women try to mask their femininity because they're worried that they're going to be frowned upon or they're going to be silenced because, oh yeah, you know, you know, Thingy said that, you know, because she's, you know, she's, you know, that people will judge more. They're worried that people are going to judge us more because we wear lipstick, because we, you know, we like to wear perfume or we like to have all these things that make us feel good because it's from an emotional place and therefore we're less logical. I feel like a lot of women try and silence as part of themselves because it makes them feel less of a data scientist even though they feel better as a woman but it shouldn't be mutually exclusive you're just a person who feels who has their way about them and shouldn't have to sacrifice a part of themselves in order for them to be listened to but this goes for other people in data science i think other people i feel like men it's a two-way thing it's not just oh you know we can give women a voice and we can empower them all we like but we can scream and shout as you know per se but what it takes is for people to listen not judge based on what we look like based on what if we're having an anxiety attack oh yeah she's having an anxiety attack yeah she's unreliable that that's something i feel that could be uh, 
um, helped a lot. I mean, I'm very, I'm very lucky. I'm in a work environment where people know that's my nature, mainly attributed to the fact that I'm, you know, I'm autistic. But a lot of women go through this inside, and a lot of men actually. But I think to be able to show it is something that takes a lot of bravery, and it requires the person to be empowered, also the work environment to be receptive and supportive, and not silence based on the fact that someone has a certain shape. And what can the data community do to foster the inclusion of women in data science and AI and STEM? I think it relates a bit more about this vulnerability, being able to talk a bit more about what you find difficult and opening up. It's actually quite, well, in my eyes, a simple, it's quite a simple solution because it's just to be human. For me, I don't, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but I, I find gender something quite, I see a human as a human. I don't see them, oh yeah, you're a woman. Oh yeah, you're a man. I'm like, okay, you're a person. Cool. You know, so I feel like a lot of people should go with that attitude. And I think a lot of them do, but it's just being self-conscious about what you portray and not knowing what people think of you. Last formal question before we jump into a quick lightning round here, and that is, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? It's okay to link things that don't make sense. And if you find the links between them and they make sense to you, even if you're like, what, is that even useful? Yes, probably. It's been able to not judge yourself by thinking weirdly. I think that's probably one of the things because when I was little, I made these notes. They made sense to me. They made no sense to everyone else. But when you get older or when you, as time goes, you're like, oh, that makes sense to me. And so it's staying, it's, I mean, cheesy, but it's staying true to yourself and to what you, what your vision is. So that's, yeah, I think that's probably one of them from the top of my head. I love that. That's absolutely an amazing way to put it. I think that's really the basis for creativity is taking two things that maybe on the surface of it don't look like they belong together or don't relate to each other, but then combining them in new ways to produce something completely different. That's kind of how yeah, I define creativity. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way of saying it. And also, sorry, just one, um, to not judge yourself for being obsessed about something. For example, if you're obsessed about the, this book or this, or this link, go for it. Be obsessed about it because this is how you get stuff done and this is how you get to solutions. I think a lot of people, especially when they're adults, they see obsession as something that is bad or chaotic or, or I don't know, unreliable. I don't know what they think. I'm, you know, I'm not an adult. <laughs> they, um, they try to silence themselves because they want to feel regulated. That's actually one of the important messages as well, So, which is combined, just to put that in there. <laughs> I like that. So let's jump into a quick lightning round here, starting with the first question. What is your data science superpower? Right. Okay. I'm not very good with numbers, but I'm very good at being able to simulate different models in my head simultaneously and know how they link back to algorithmic logic. That is one hell of a superpower. So if you could put up a billboard anywhere in the world, what would it say and why? Oh no, I don't like that one. <laughs> I'm not good with advertising. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. You know what? There it is. I'm not, I'm not good, good at advertising. <laughs> That's, good. That's perfect. I love it. So, what's something you believe that other people think is crazy? A lot of people discourage reactions either from themselves or from other people. I don't know why. I feel like this is due to the fact that we judge. We we think we we judge people based on this one reaction as 
opposed to seeing how a person evolves. So basically, it's a signal, but it's a positive signal and a negative signal. If I was really excited, people would be like, oh, calm down, Millie. Or if I'm crying, you'd be like, oh, Millie's being dramatic again. So I feel like a lot of people get scared of this intensity of reaction that we naturally harness as humans because it's instinctive, which ironically is something that we're trying to get the computer to do. So that's the one thing I find really weird is that we're trying to suppress our instincts to react, to look like we are logical. So what would you say is the most bizarre aspect or quality of human nature? That kind of, you know, we always seek conformity. I have no idea why, because, I mean, if we were to look at evolution, cancer doesn't believe in, you know, conformity. If anything, it's a branched evolution. And this is something that I feel like humans naturally have, but we naturally try and oppress so that everything is coherent. That and making meetings about meetings, that I've never understood. So I like that. Meetings about meetings, yes. So oh. about that point about conformity, do you think conformity is distinctly different from wanting to belong to the tribe or be a part of the tribe it, are those two kind of like the same thing I feel like we try and make conformity. It's a critical mass effect and a bystander effect for a common cause. And that's fine. But when it comes to the point of exclusion, or you feel excluded, that's something else. If you feel like you don't fit, or if you feel like you need to be this shape, that's when it gets a bit um, sticky. Because you're like, well, I don't completely agree with that. And if you think about all these different categories, all these different boxes that humans live by, not one, two people are congruent. So to be able to be a conformist or completely in the middle of everyone, you probably don't exist. And if you did, you'd be on your own because, you know, it's no one's no one's normal. And do you talk about this in your book? So those who are interested, pick up the book. You go into crowds and individuality as well. So that was yeah, a really interesting exactly. read. So what is an academic topic outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time researching? Obviously, it depends on the data scientist in question. For people like me who haven't started out as coders and are wanting to, then obviously learning a bit more about code, but also how data science is very much um, as an art and also what data science can do beyond um, what you think, feel like it can do. So I feel like it's a bit more of a philosophy as well, if I were to get all eggy about it, um, is to read around the subject. And that isn't to be like, oh, I'll read another language. It's like, no, read philosophy. Why do I need to learn philosophy? Well, to be able to simulate psychology of different types of eras and different types of higher order structures and how they localize down to the different people, then surely you're going to need to know the structures of hierarchy that exist. When I say hierarchy, I mean levels of abstraction, but also the interpretation. So actually, I think learning things that are unrelated, such as philosophy, um, psychology and art is something that is very fun to do. It's very inspiring and it can also make you look at your work a lot differently. To quote Marcus Aurelius, what could guide us? Only philosophy. 100% agree with that. <laughs> philosophy is definitely uh, one subject I'm very deep into right now. Yeah, so, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. So what's the number one book, fiction, nonfiction, or maybe even one from each that you would recommend our audience read? And what was your most impactful takeaway from it? Nonfiction book. This is really hard because I absolutely love reading and you learn something from every book. If I had to have one that I remember, it's called called Critical Mass by Philip Ball. And it came out quite a few years ago, I think in 2004 or something like that. And I read it in my first year of uni in 2010. And I absolutely loved it. It gave me the confidence to be able to realize that I can link things and well, I, I can link things, but that me linking things makes sense and is also desirable. Oh, so I can link 
science with psychology and psychology with physics and then, then politics? Yes, you can. And so this book, I read it. It's quite, I mean, it's quite a chunky thing, but it's definitely worth it. It discusses physics, politics, um, biology, graph theory um, in such an accessible way and, and also agent-based modeling. It's, it's, it's great. It's a really good book. Definitely, I'll add that to the show notes. And uh, I'm not disagreeing with you. I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I pick up pretty much every book that my guests recommend to me, and I've got something like 40 unread books sitting on my shelf right now. Uh, <laughs> but luckily, I tend to read a little bit fast, so I blast through them. But I'm looking forward to this one. And something that's kind of on a related note to what you just mentioned, there's a couple of books. Um, one is called Range and one is called The Self-Made Billionaire Effect. And essentially the premise of those two books is that being able to take two unrelated ideas and put them together into something new, combine them in a new way, is what drives progress forward in pretty much every field. Definitely, definitely. And I think that's where a lot of you know information evolution comes from. It's joining things that are unrelated for you to create something bigger so yeah fiction so, i can't answer that one i'm afraid of fiction but i've started reading it but at the moment I've, i know i haven't read enough for me to feel like I, I i'm i'm informed but i absolutely love normal people by sally rooney but that's my personal preference <laughs> so yeah i'll definitely add those add those to the show notes <laughs> so, it might not be your cup of tea but you know there we go <laughs> I don't have too much fiction in my bookshelf. I think the only fiction book I have is The Virtue of War. And that is a book written from the perspective of Alexander the Great through his conquest. Uh, So it's like a historical fiction, I guess, in some sense. Yeah. So if if we can get a magical telephone that allowed you to contact 18-year-old Camilla, what would you tell her? Keep doing what you're doing. It'll come handy later on. People call you crazy now, but, you know, just because you don't fit in a system. That doesn't mean you weren't born to make a new one. And I feel to have that confidence is something that I wish I had when I was little. But mind you, you could say that with with every child. I was actually quite confident uh, teenager in my own way. But it's just carry on, really. I don't re- I don't regret doing anything because then how would I, I wouldn't be who I am now? You know, Bayesian. So it's just to reassure her that everything's going to be okay, basically. So what's the best advice you have ever received? So I've got two bits that I feel like is that I kind of repeat to myself on a, I guess a daily basis, really. Nothing changes if nothing changes, which is really simple. But then you're like, oh yeah, I've been doing the same thing. Why, why am I getting different results? Well, it's actually the definition of insanity. But when you're writing or communicating, often people get writer's block, so to speak. And the very thing you are afraid to write is actually the very thing you should be writing because other people are going to be feeling it. But to have the brain to communicate it is another thing like that is to to relate to things that a lot of people are scared of but don't have the guts to articulate now that's great now i love that yeah if, if you are feeling fear about something that is a good indication that that is the direction that you should go towards mm. so what song do you have on repeat right now currently i really like massive attack <laughs> and Moby currently um, at the moment I'd have to say Teardrops by Massive Attack you know it's quite retro but it always does the job <laughs> yeah it's a good track yeah that's uh, also the theme song for TV show 
House MD. Uh, House MD is about he's a doctor. It's essentially uh, he's a doctor, but he's modeled after Sherlock Holmes. Oh, those got Hugh Laurie in. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah. Hugh oh, Laurie, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what's next on the horizon for you? Any new projects? Uh, any new books? Yes. So basically, I'm currently writing another book. But when I say that, it might not turn into a book. It might turn into three books. I don't know yet. So I'm writing and assembling bits together for how I've always done. And from that, decipher where they're going to go when things crystallize more. I'm also speaking to TV production companies to see what we can, because um, it's really exciting, actually. I mean, nothing's finalized yet. Nothing's approved yet. But it's great to have that communication to see what can be possible to outreach the message of not just university, but also so I guess a philosophy of science in everyday life and just being definitely. able to I'll get there <laughs> That's my, definitely some my. exciting things exciting things on the horizon for sure and if people wanted to pick up your book where could they find that I guess you can find it online. I just tell people Amazon or Waterstones. I mean, yeah, and they can just Google it, really, and how you find it. If people wanted to connect with you and find you online, where could they do that? Look at my Instagram. That's kind of where I kind of post stuff. Instagram, Twitter, those are um, LinkedIn. Yeah, those are the three that I um, mainly use, to be honest. And do you want to shout out your handles on those? Yeah, um, my Twitter is Millsy May, so M-I-L-L-Z-Y-M-A-I. And my Instagram is Millie Moonface, so M-I-L-L-I-E underscore M-O-O-N-F-A-C-E. I think, and then Dr. McCullough, I think Camilla Pang on LinkedIn, I think, yeah. All right, so I'll definitely add those to show notes as well to your guest profile. We've talked about your social media profiles and stuff, but how could people actually connect with you? By being real, humor and curiosity go a long way. But the most important factor is for them to not be afraid to react or for me to react. Because And also indifference is quite literally a flat liner. React and be human. I love it. Dr. Pang, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on the show today and talk about yourself and your book. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate you staying up late. I think it's quite late for you in England. So again, Half thank 11. you so much. <laughs> thank you for having me on here. I really enjoyed it. 